when we think about Lent, it is a time of preparation. And I appreciate so much Pastor Sean filling in last week, um, and you're glad that I wasn't here. I didn't really have a fever, but I had things leaving my body in places I didn't really want it to, in ways that I didn't want, and so you know that you didn't want me to be here. And I'm washing my hands all the time. I hope you're washing your hands too. It does disturb me a little that they say that you have a one in 2.5 chance of getting the coronavirus. If, if, if the people around you have it, they're going to give it to 2.5 people. Not very many when you consider measles is going around and the rate is 18 to 1. Wow. Have you had measles? It's probably a good thing. Uh, you never had the measles? Well. <laughs> but we're finding a lot of Maybe could we say hysteria? And we need to, and if it helps us wash and take care of better, good. We should do that. Because cleansing is an important aspect of what it means to be a person and what it means to be a Christian. So who are you? That's our topic today. Who are you? And I, I think about all this uh, time um, in, in life when people have identity crisis. And they're wondering, who am I, and why am I here, and what is the meaning of life? Aren't those great questions? And you know what? Every generation asks those questions, and it's good. It's good to seek, and, and we have all kinds of answers. We have more how-to books on the shelves uh, of the bookstores now than anything. I mean, you don't even have to go to the bookstore. You can just go to Amazon, and they'll bring it to your door probably by tomorrow if you order by 5 p.m. There's all kinds of things that we can, they can help you find yourself. If you don't know who you are and you're living in your parents' basement and you're 35 years old, it's time to start, okay? Just saying. There is a new um, inventory uh, thing that's been going around. It, it's been in business, Gallup organization, uh, they do polling, but they have this thing. And we do this at our ministerial studies program. Um, have you heard of this one called Strengths Finder? Strengths Finder, anybody heard of that? Anyone? You've heard, did you have to do Strengths Finder when you went through? Okay. You've heard of it because of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, did you have to do that for school? Yeah. We're, we're taking our ordinance through that. And I was just with them and and it was very exciting to be with these ministerial students and, uh, and all that that they're going through. Do you know, we have like 44 people that want to become ministers in our district, which is an exciting thing. That's a cool thing. I, I'm not sure I would recommend doing it unless you really have the call of God, you know. It is not for the faint of hearted. But So Strength Finders is the thing that we do. We, we used to do personality tests, and, and I love those... Um, uh, Holy Spirit spiritual gift inventories that we do, and we do those here at the church from time to time. And, and that's a really cool thing, to think that God has a gift for you and, and, and finding that gift and, and then developing it and using it for the kingdom of God. That's a cool thing. Well, I remember when I was a freshman in college, we took a battery of tests, like three days in a row, all day long taking these tests. 
And the very last one was kind of a fun one. I think they, they designed it that way. It was a psychology test. And then we all went into Psych 101 sometime during our freshman year, and we unpacked all the things that were wrong with us. It was just exciting, you know? But I still remember a question from that very first psychology test that I took as a freshman uh, in, in college. And I remember the question. I think I've got it word for word. And I'm going to share it with you. Because it, it's still fun for me, you know? You take these psychology tests, and this, here's the question. Would you rather read a book or kiss a person of the opposite sex? Obviously, I still remember that question because I had an immediate answer for that. <laughs> I know it was not read a book. That was not it. That's what you would have thrown. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're compatible with that way. I'm much more discerning now. <laughs> I, today, I'd go, well, what book? <laughs> or what person of the opposite sex? Eh? That could, that could make a difference, too, you know? So, <laughs> Finding our identity, our self-identity, you know, that's a part of maturing and, and, and growing up. Um, it's so interesting, uh, and scholars debate about this, so don't go home and think about it all afternoon, okay? They wonder about Jesus. When did Jesus know his identity? Did Jesus have a secret identity early on, and then he finally discovered it later? You know, we have some hints. Uh, we do know that at 12 years old, he went to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't know if he'd done that lots of times, but we know about this one event. And um, as will happen sometimes, his parents left him at church, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening? How in the world? <laughs> it's happened more than once to us. To be fair, we would get, to, you know, like if her family was having a gathering, there was four sisters, and they all had kids, and, and we all kind of went to church together, and then we would go home, and we'd get home, and all of a sudden the phone would ring, and they'd say, hey, are you missing anybody? <laughs> no kidding, they, that happened. Oh, we'll be right back. We'll, we went back and got them. We had that happen, a couple, uh, actually more than once. And, well, I thought they were with you. No, no, I thought they were with you. And that's what happened with Jesus, you know. His parents, where were you? I thought you were with Bartholomew's family. You know? And so finally they go back and they find him. And he's, he's at the temple and he has this thing that he says. I have to be about my father's business. And so there is a mark there that he's beginning or under, fully understanding who he is. But guess what? He doesn't become a man until he's 13 years old, which is, I'm sure, true in all of our cases. You know, we became a man at 13. I, I'm wondering if you, who's decided 18 you became a man? You know what it was? We were asking 18-year-olds to fight in war, and so we said, well, we better let them vote if they're going to fight in war. And um, so that happened. Uh, they lowered the voting age to 18. I thought it would have been better to raise the fighting age to 21, but ah well. Nobody goes with my, my fabulous ideas. Maturity, growing up, Jesus had to go through this whole process. And uh, so he turns 13, and he starts his public ministry. 17 years later. Okay, do you get that? Jesus has 30 years of preparation for what he's going to do. 
And in that whole process, he's learning stuff. He, he didn't know how to speak Aramaic when he was born. You know, he was like other babies. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. And so how did, when did that identity really take shape? We know something happened when he was 12, and we certainly know something happened when he was 30. What happened when he was 30? He got baptized. He went down to the Jordan River, and near John the Baptist is calling people, hey, come to God. And Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to God. You need to baptize me. And John says, oh, I don't want to baptize you. I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And he goes, nope, I've got to do this. I'm going to follow God. So he's being obedient. For 30 years, he's been an obedient son. I don't know, Joseph died somewhere in there, and so did he have to take care of Mary? You know, what was going on? Did the other kids finally get old enough? For the whole process, at whatever reason, when Jesus turns 30 is when he begins his public ministry. And this book records all the, many of the things that Jesus did. Uh, it tells us that he went about doing good, teaching, healing, do you know how many miracles are recorded in the Bible? Four Gospels. Total, 30 miracles are recorded. Now, there, the Bible says there are some others that didn't make it in. But 30, and if he was about 36 months of public ministry, that's less than one miracle a month. So, okay, what was Jesus doing? He was preparing us to follow God. And when you think about it, did Jesus ever have an identity crisis? You know, we talk about you know, middle age and having identity crises now. Some of you still have that to look forward to. Some of you, it's been so long, you've probably already forgot. We begin to wrestle with these big questions about life and the type of person that we are as opposed to the person we want to be. Uh, our passage today is about identity. But where a lot of people today go to psychology and self-help books and all these kind of things to find their identity, Paul has an idea, and he records it in Romans. It's something very different. He calls believers to remember their baptism, to remember being saved. And that little ceremony that you may or may not have had that you can look back on and say, yes, I'm a new person in Christ. So we're going to take a look at that. Would you open your Bibles, if you have them, to um, Romans 6? Of course, we'll have the, the notes on the screen. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one to see me after church, I'd love to give you a New Testament at least. And, and it has some little help things that are just awesome for new believers or somebody who wants to start in a new translation, a modern translation. If you have the one true King James Version with you, God bless you. Let me please, please let me give you a new one. Okay. Nothing wrong with the King James. Great. Great stuff. Really good. Yeah. But there's something better. Okay. For you. I mean, for King James 500 years ago, that was really good. You know, but okay. I didn't mean for that to go that way. Okay. We're going to read out of the New Living Translation. Here we go, Romans 6, 3. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died 
and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Woohoo! Wouldn't that be nice? It says it in the Bible. How can that be true? Verse 7 For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. And now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirement of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. So identity, man, identity is important. And Paul is proclaiming here that this whole initiating sacrament, being saved, uh, being baptized. Baptism is, is really just a ceremony of what has happened in your salvation, okay? So um, baptism is, is not magic. It, you get baptized and, and something's different any more than having a wedding is magic. Uh, but it does change things. And baptism is like the sacrament or a ceremony, like a wedding. It's about the marriage that's really important. It's about living your life in Christ after salvation that's important. All of this um, is an act of grace. You are brought into the family of God, into the body of Christ, uh, the church. Um, you're being identified as one who belongs to Jesus. In fact, since we belong to Jesus, we probably should act like it. And when we're not able to act like it, we should call on his spirit to help us act like it so that we really can become it. It takes all of our effort, and even all of our effort's not enough. We need God. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. But this is our core identity, to follow Jesus. You know, it's like a parent telling a child, hey, remember your family. Or, you know, we don't do those kind of things in our family. My parents never said that to me because we did all that stuff in our family. But I hope you had one of those families that said that their family name was important. Hey, you behave like you're a part of this family. 
Well, Lent is a time to remember, to remember who you are. And actually, there's two things, and if you're taking notes today, write these down. The first thing is for Lent is to remember who I am. Who, I, who am I in Christ? Who are you is the, is the thing that we need to find out. And we will search for all kinds of ways to find that out, but until we find that out in Christ, we're not going to know who we really are. You can read every self-help book. You can, take, you can become a psychology major. You can find out if it's better to read a book or kiss a person of the opposite sex. But when it comes down to it, who you are only can be fulfilled by knowing who I am in Christ. So a better question is, whose am I? Who, whose are you? Whose we are is really important. Who I am is important, but who I belong to is much more important. And Lent is a good time to kind of strip away all the things, the known sin, the distractions that keep us from being who we really are, from finding our identity, and that is in Christ. So Lent is about moving us towards Easter so we're ready for a resurrection of life. So I have two questions for you today. The first one is, uh, so who are you? Who are you in Christ? And the answer, number one, is you're dead. Isn't that excited? Came to church today to find out I am dead. Baptism unites believers with Christ in his death. He dies so that we can be alive. And there's a practical symbolism of death in the sacrament of baptism. Now, you would think that, that it, you know, when you get married, you die to yourself. <laughs> well, I hope so. Remember that whole idea of two becoming one, a new thing? Part of yourself dies, but you're better together. Wouldn't that be nice? That's the way it is if you're married in Christ, if you're fully together, if that oneness is there. Baptism is also that kind of a sacrament. We, we, when, when we baptize people, we do the whole thing, putting them underwater. Now, there was one time when somebody was ill, they were in the hospital and they wanted to be baptized, and I did the sprinkling thing. But that's the only time I've done that. I've seen it before, but that's, you can do that. Sometimes people want to have their babies baptized. We really concentrate on baby dedication, infant dedication, not baby baptism, because baptism really is a personal decision to follow Christ, and babies can't make that. Now, it's a great intention for the parents to say, hey, I'm going to follow Christ. My child is going to be brought up in the way of the Lord. That, that, all good. And we even, if people insist, we will baptize infants, okay? Um, we don't have any kind of a thing that some... Woohoo, woohoo, magic happens, and, and when you're baptized, you go to heaven. No, it's, it's your personal responsibility to live your life before Christ. That is how you receive heaven as a gift. So, number one, you're dead. Uh, what does this mean? Uh, several things. You want to write down some other things. One of the things I would suggest is you have to surrender your life to be dead. Uh, it's, baptism is surrender. Uh, both hands, I surrender. Uh, now, I didn't get baptized until just before I became an ordained minister of the gospel. I, and I knew that I was going to get ordained, but I thought back to my life. And one of the things that typically you do when you're joining the church, you think about your baptism. And if you've been baptized, great. Even as an infant, we, 
we say, okay, well, that's great, but we encourage people to maybe get baptized again. Well, the church that I grew up in, that well, I didn't grow up in the church. I started as a teenager, didn't have a baptistry. Now, they would do baptism services every once in a while, but it was another church. And so somehow in the time that I got saved until I went away to college, I didn't get baptized. I became a Christian, but I didn't get baptized. Then I was in college, and you're kind of bouncing around different churches, all kinds of things. College life is just crazy. And I didn't get baptized. Then I became a youth pastor, and I started helping with baptisms, even though I hadn't been baptized. That was tricky. Um, we used to have these big, huge waders. Yeah, have you ever gone fishing with the waders? And one of them had a leak in it. And, and I, when I was the assistant, I always got the ones that had the leak. So maybe I'm partly baptized by that. No, it didn't count. It didn't count. But, I mean, it was, it was quite a deal. So I was helping with baptisms as a youth pastor. I baptized some people, but I hadn't been baptized myself. Oh, boy. Now I'm getting ready to get ordained, and I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm answering the call of God on my life. I'm going to get ordained. And um, I went to get ordained in 1977. No, no, to begin the process of schooling and stuff. Now I'm on the committee. Can you imagine? You know, we're very kind. We, we want people to, if they have a call of God on their life, man, we want to encourage them and help them. And so here I am. I started in 1977, but I went to the, to the meeting, and they said, well, tell us about your call to preach. Oh, call to preach? In that day, they had one ordination as elder, call to preach. Now, they had some other things, and they were working on it, and here I am, a youth pastor, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm preaching, teaching, and doing all kinds of stuff, but I don't have the call to preach. When are you going to grow up and be a real pastor? This is what I'm facing in 1977. Very young, tender. I, you know, so I said, well, I don't have that. So they said, see ya. You know. But then somehow the Church of the Nazarene began to change, and they realized, wow, you're preaching to 130 kids every Sunday. That's more than I got in my church. Okay, well, maybe that is. Maybe there is a call of God on your life. And so I began to look at that, and the church changed, and, and I changed, and lo and behold, 20 years later from that very first local preacher's license i got ordained but before i got ordained i had to think oh man i have never been dumped i've never been baptized i've helped in all these things so i got baptized i'm standing up at the front of the church and they're thinking oh pastor steve is helping with the baptism tonight isn't that nice <laughs> no pastor steve's getting baptized it was surrender. It was. And perhaps if you have not been baptized, you'll realize it is a surrender. It's an act of obedience. Now, can, can you be saved without being baptized? Yes. Can you be married without having a wedding? Well, the state's going to make you go down to the courthouse and do some stuff. But you don't have to have a church wedding. But there's something that happens when we say before God and these witnesses, it's a commitment. And the first thing you're saying is, you're dead. I'm dead. Baptism also is a demonstration of a washing away of sin, the purification that happens in baptism. It's a washing away of the sins. 
And, and so that's, we think about water baptism in that way. And when somebody is raised up out of the water, um, we have words of new life and words of resurrection, and this is really good. We had not, have really not lost anyone yet in a baptism ceremony. But think about this. We put somebody under, I remember the guy saying, Pastor, Pastor, stop. I've got my wallet in my pocket. Oh, I want your wallet baptized too. Shoom! You know, that kind of thing. Isn't that fun? I have a lot of baptism stories. Heard some on the way out of church this morning. It's the whole self that is baptized that has to die. We're dying to self and being raised to new life. That's what baptism is just a ceremony, a sacrament. Of, of that. It does mean something, just like a wedding means something, just like taking communion means something. So baptism proclaims that we are dying to self. Write that down. Die to self. Um, I love all those movies that say, die, sucker. You know, but when it comes, you know, we get, we get so immune to scenes of life and death because of television and movies and video games where they're killing people. And, but it really is a consecration of ourself to God. And, and we have to choose it. It's a free choice to forsake the sin which leads to death. So dying to sin is choosing life. And dying to sin also is a death to selfishness, and our focus is no longer on serving ourselves, but on loving others and loving God and loving others. Uh, the world will tell you, hey, love yourself. You only come around once. Do it with gusto, all those kind of things. You're worth it. Well, I guess in a sense you are worth it, because Jesus said, you are worth it. I'm going to die for you so that you can really live. Dying to self also means joining in the restorative mission that God has to restore the world to himself. We live and do things for God. We do things for the cause of Christ because that becomes our cause too. New life in Christ. Now, when Paul's writing this to the Romans... Literally, people are being killed because they're making this statement of, I'm a follower of Christ. Because they would say, Jesus is Lord. And the standard Roman greeting was, Caesar is Lord. And so if somebody says, hey, Caesar is Lord, that's like saying, Donald Trump for president, and somebody saying, go Bernie. Do you realize how opposed that is? That's about what... I thought that would be better. Anyway, um... It, that's what it's like. We're proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, and they could be killed for that. Literally, Christians were killed for that very thing. So, who are you? You're dead, number one. But number two, who are you? You're alive. Yay, you're alive. It's alive. Baptism unites us with Christ, not only in his death, but in his life. And this resurrection that we're talking about not, didn't just happen for Jesus, it happens for us too. And the resurrection enables us to live in hope. And hope is such a vital part of, of our being saved, of our, of our baptized identity. 
uh, we hope for the restoration, of the, the resurrection of all things. Our call is to go into the world and to baptize others, which means sharing the gospel with others so that they might be saved, so that they might share in this resurrection life too. Later, if you, as you read Romans, Romans is so interesting too for us today because you, you realize that Rome, when Paul was writing to them, he hadn't been there yet. He's sending this letter to them. But America today culturally is so similar in many ways to Rome of that day. They didn't have their own stuff. They just borrowed from everybody else. And then they became the dominant culture, and everybody wanted to be like them, who was like everybody else. It was just, that's America. So, you know, it's great being an American, but it doesn't save you. It doesn't give you new life. It just gives you maybe a better life right now. Hopefully it does. So this whole idea, uh, you know, later in Romans you're going to see this, this groaning for the entire creation to, to be restored. And that's what God's going to do. He's going to restore the world someday. Now, if you're a Christian, that's going to be a good day. If you're not, that's going to be a tough day. So we are in the age of grace, a time to share the love of Christ with others so that they can be born again, have new life, be renewed. Well, being baptized also unites us with the kingdom of God in the world. See, it's not about what nation we're a part of or what political party or any of that stuff. It's whether you're a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his public ministry and he's demonstrating that he is joining God's army. He's going, joining God's mission that God has for him. Uh, Jesus' baptism also is, reveals his identity. Now, this is one of the great Trinitarian moments. And haven't you just been wondering, what, what are some of the good Trinitarian moments in the scriptures? You, know? you probably have been wondering about this all morning. Well, I'm going to tell you, just here's one of them what a Trinitarian moment is. It's a, it's a moment in Scripture when at the same time the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are all there. This is one of those at the baptism of Jesus. So the Father speaks. The Father God is there and he says, this is my Son. I'm, I'm really happy with him. And um, so the Father is there by a voice. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there in the form of a dove. Now, was it an actual bird that actually came down did the bird land on Jesus' head? Have you ever had a person, a bird, land on your head? You know, was it symbolic? Was it a, a, a real bird? Don't know. Not sure. Because some of the language there says it was kind of the image. It wasn't actually a bird. It was the image of a bird. And so a dove. And, and, but, but what was clear was that the presence of the Holy Spirit was there. So God the Father's there, the Holy Spirit's there, and well, Jesus is there. He's the one being baptized. And John the Baptist is acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek word that we have, Christ. We, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title, the anointed one. And so he's being declared as the anointed one of God. So we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all there in baptism. And you know what? They're all there in our baptism, in our salvation, and, and in our new life. 
in baptism, resurrection has the final word. Being united with Christ's death also means being united with Christ's resurrection. Now, Lent is about how to die, but Lent is also about how to live. So there is a dying to self and living for God that all happens in this time. Because of the resurrection, we don't fear death. That's why true Christians, when they are on their deathbed, are glad to be dying. To die is gain. It's a good thing. And that's why we're able to follow Christ with confidence, even in the face of the most difficult circumstances that life can give us. Now, I want to tell you about this in a way that came clear to me uh, at a seminar years ago that I really like, and I want to share it with you. Um, the guy that was sharing this is a guy named Adrian Rogers. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was the head of the Southern uh, Baptist Convention. If we have any Southern Baptists here, you maybe know the name of Adrian Rogers. By the way, did you know that there are more Southern Baptists in Dallas County, Texas, than there are Nazarenes in the world? So, you know, props to Adrian Rogers. But he's a great teacher, and, and let me tell you what Baptists believe and what Nazarenes or Wesleyans believe, 99.9 is exactly the same. All the essential stuff is just the same. Yes, I did say that out loud at the Church of the Nazarene. Adrian Rogers, great. He's a teacher. Um, this was my very first video seminar that I took. So it's, what, it's been 25 years ago. And I still remember this. He's teaching. It's a prayer seminar. And there's like 300 people in the room and thousands around the world that are tuning in. And so it was, it was, there was a sense that you were kind of right there. And so Adrian Rogers is talking. He says, what is it like to be dead? By the way, he did die in 2005, so he knows. You know. He said this, a dead man is not afraid to die. <laughs> Yeah, oh, he's already dead, you know, he's not afraid to die. Okay, that makes sense. He said, a dead man is not afraid of being robbed. What does a dead man have that he's going to take with him? Certainly, you know, he's not afraid of being robbed. A dead man is not offended by insults. He's not going to take personal offense at anything that you might say. He said that a dead man doesn't get angry about injustice. Ooh. If there's one thing I can become angry about, it's injustice. I have a high sense of justice, especially while driving. So I'm not fully dead. I realize, and I'm, probably you have some areas where you're not fully dead either, because just being cut off in traffic is, it brings life to me. Okay? Not, not the right kind of life, you understand that. But dead people, don't, they're not upset about being cut off. You know what? Dead people should not drive. Not, not a good thing. So, okay. We're getting close here. Where do you want to go for lunch today? Dead people don't care about where they go for lunch. And now you're thinking about where to go to lunch instead of listening to the rest of this message. There's some spiritual food here from this scripture. Let's get it before we go to lunch. Okay. They don't, dead people don't care. You know, some people give up food for Lent 
It's not about what you're giving up. It's what you're gaining. It's a focus on God. Lent for many is a time to give up the old way of life and live for Jesus. Something that we ought to do all the time as Christians. Because that's what it really means to be a Christian. When people started using the word Christian, they meant it to be derogatory. Oh, you little Christians. If somebody calls you a little Christian, say, thank you very much, you little Christs, you. Look at what it says in Colossians 2.12. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he, and forgave all our sins. You see, believers are dead, but they are alive too with Christ. And you know what? To be alive with Christ means two things. And usually these are two steps that kind of we can see happen in a person's life. The first one is that he needs to be resident with you, a resident. You ever get mail and it says to the resident? Immediately I think they don't know who I am. They think my name is resident. But it's just kind of a mass mailing. And instead of putting everybody's name on it, they put resident. Guess what? Last week, I got a letter from Melania Trump. Did you? And she said, dear Steve, she knows my name. Can you imagine? It was so cool. She doesn't think I'm resident. Mass mailings, computers, all that. Isn't it amazing? When we get something, when there's somebody that's a resident, that means they live there. And what we're saying is that when believers are baptized, when they're saved, there, there is this Jesus is now resident in your heart. Um, but that's not enough just for him to live there because the second part is even more important. Not only should Jesus be resident, but he needs to be president. And you need to vote for him to elect him to that position in your life. When he is president, that means you are sanctified. That means that Jesus is now the ruler of your life. He is your king that we sang about this morning. He is resident, but he has to be president in your life for you truly to be a follower of Jesus. Being baptized, Jesus becomes resident. Being baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus becomes president. Now, our identity is ultimately found in our own baptism, being united with Christ's death and resurrection, his life. Now, many people let themselves be defined by their past, by their choices that they made in the past, instead of walking in the freedom of Christ, which is always a today thing. So let the past go. Live for today. What does that look like? Um, I, I like this image where you write down things from your past that you're having a hard time 
forgiving yourself, and you let them burn. You drop them in the fire, and they burn, and the smoke goes up to heaven, and it's gone. I, I like that image. If that helps you, man, great. Because those with identity rooted in Christ have joined the mission of God in the world through lives lived as instruments of righteousness. That's God's will for you today. He calls you. Now, he may not call you to be a minister or even a teacher or missionary. He may not call you to go to Africa. But he does call you to live for him, die to self, and he'll resurrect you to new life for him. Now, Peter had a tough time with this. Peter, like, you know, he was the leader of the of the original 12 disciples, and, and, and he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. And, and, you know, Peter needed to die to himself too. And he does. And look at what he writes later. This is uh, 1 Peter 2.21. For God called you to do good, even if it meant suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example. And you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Do you remember we used to wear those little bracelets that had those initials on them. Do you remember those? WWJD. I don't know when that went around. About 30 years ago, I think. But I mean, we all had those bracelets, and we would put those on. And, and then every time you had to make a decision, you would go, oh, what would Jesus do? And then try with all your human ingenuity and ability to do what Jesus would do. Then I heard that they, the reason that they were elastic is because you, if you didn't do what Jesus did, if you had the chance, rather than just going, oh, I blew it, you could take that little thing and snap it. And, oh, you would know next time to do what Jesus is. This is personal uh, pain, suffering, you know. We used to do those things, and, and you know, I think that's a good thing. I, I remember a time when we were going to pray for some uh, missionaries in some country, and they had us put a little dot on our watch, and every time you looked at your watch, you were supposed to see that dot and then uh, pray for that. You know, little techniques, great. You know what all these are? Behavior modification. Us trying to be what God wants us to be. So don't ask yourself, what would Jesus do, and then do that. That's you on your ability trying to do what Jesus would do. Here's the better thing to ask and do. Who's, who would Jesus be? Because it's not about doing. It's about being. And the only way you can be like Jesus is to die. You die. Your, yourself dies. Sin in you dies. And you become a new person. 
a resurrected person in Christ. So whom, whom would Jesus be? That's much more on what would Jesus do. And if you find yourself trying to do Jesus, do Christianity, you're going to succeed sometimes, and you're going to fail. We humanly are not able to do it. If we were, the law would have worked. Rules would have worked, but they're not good enough. We need to die and be born again. So, as we come to the end of this time, I want you to think of two things. First, are you dead? Are you alive again? That's a great place. And, and we're going to pray today. And if you are uncertain of that, you get to pray. If you choose for that kind of death and new life. And then the follow of that is just the ceremony to commemorate that. The wedding, if you will. If you'd like to be baptized, you can take a blue card sometime right on there. Baptism. We used to have a, I thought we used to have a checkbox that said baptism. But I checked the card this morning and it's not on there. So you'd have to write if you just circle letter B or write a baptism, if, if you'd like to be baptized, you realize, hey, you know, I need to be baptized. You don't even have to get ordained afterwards. But if you would like to be baptized, I, I would encourage you to do that. If you were baptized as an, as an infant, whoop, whoop, you know, you've made other decisions since then. You probably need to rethink that decision. Being baptized is a personal decision of salvation in Christ. That's what it is. So I want us to pray, and then we're going to go, and we're going to enter into Lent, a deeper portion of Lent, where we prepare our hearts for Jesus, not just to be resident, but to be president. So would you pray with me? If, if this is your prayer, you might just say it. You don't have to say it out loud. You can just say it right in your own heart and mind. But let's, let's pray. Lord, here we are. Uh, we're in your house, and that means... Chances are we're part of your family. But if we're not really fully committed to you, this is a good time for us to say, Jesus, you know me. You know who I am. You know I'm a sinner. I have sinned. And Lord, maybe I've sinned this last week and I've denied it or tried to hide it, but I just confess it to you. I'm a sinner and I need you. And I want to give myself to you. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I want to be dead to sin. I want to be alive in you. So I accept your free gift of salvation. I want right now to know that in you, I'm not just dead to sin, but I'm alive again. I want to be saved. I want to be yours. And Lord, I want to enter into this whole process of you not just being resident in my life, but being president. I give myself to you. I die so that I might live. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit and under the direction of God the Father, this is a holy moment in which we commend and give ourselves to you, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Put your stamp on it. Thank you, Jesus.
Amen.